Welcome to Faith and welcome to our sermon message series on the King and the Kingdom from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the idea of a king and a kingdom is rather foreign to us as Americans. Uh, we live in a democracy, a system of government in which the citizens exercise power directly through their elected representatives. Uh, it's this bold experiment of self-government. The government of the people, for the people, by the people, as Abraham Lincoln uh, described. We got away from kings and monarchs because of the tendency of how absolute power corrupts absolutely. And instead of good and just and benevolent kings, the history of the world often revealed the rise of despots and cruel dictators. But even Though democracies have better controls and balances, they still need attention. They still need effort and tending to work well. Uh, President Obama exhorted the listening citizens in his farewell speech in Chicago this past week. He said, if, if it falls to each of us to be those anxious, jealous guardians of our democracy, to embrace the joyous task we've been given to continually try to improve this great nation of ours. One of the areas that he said needs attention in our democracy is race relations. He said, and that's not easy to do. For too many of us, it's become safer to retreat in our own bubbles, whether in our neighborhoods or on college campuses or places of worship, or especially on social media feeds surrounded by people who look like us and share the same political outlook and never challenge our assumptions. He said, laws alone won't be enough. Hearts must change. He said, hearts must change. But how do hearts change? Well, Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, desperately wicked, incurable. Who can understand it? We need someone greater than a president to change hearts. And we need someone greater and more powerful than human kings uh, to change hearts. We need a divine king. Uh, we need a creator king, uh, the king of kings who has come to change stone-cold hearts of people into what God promises in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The Gospel of Matthew uh, to, to us is about this divine king, this God-man, Jesus, who came into the world. And specifically, we have said that the Gospel of Matthew is about Jesus, the promised king who has come to usher in the kingdom of God to convince both Jews and Gentiles that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and to strengthen believers to be the radical community of the king and to call and make disciples of all nations in the face of opposition. Jesus is to be the king for all people, to strengthen all believers to make disciples of all nations. And this is what we're, we are unpacking over the course of these uh, weeks and even months. Last week, Pastor Stan revealed in the beginning of the chapter we're looking at today uh, that this gospel is about our identification with Jesus as our victorious warrior, the, 
the great king who overcame sin and temptation and who ultimately defeated Satan and the power of sin in our lives. You know, that temptation of Jesus in the wilderness has often been described as Jesus' boot camp, as it was preparing and testing him for the mission before him. And so the verses that we're looking at today are actually Jesus' mission launch into the world. Let's look at this in verse 12 and following. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that was what was written by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. So the Gospel of Matthew was written not just to persuade unbelievers about Jesus, but it was to strengthen believers to remain faithful in following Jesus in the radical call and the mission of making disciples. Jesus, the great king, is the one who changes hearts through the proclamation of good news, but it was given to believers to be the messengers and the ambassadors the teachers and the disciple-makers to form radical communities of grace who reveal the reign of Christ as king in their midst that others might know and follow him. And so we see here that Jesus is launching this radical gospel mission, and he calls his disciples and he calls you and I to radically follow him. Can you trust him to leave everything to follow him? Will he be faithful to you? Will he carry you through the dark nights? Will he give you songs in the night? Will he never forsake you or leave you? Will he forgive you of your foolish sins? Will he take care of your kids? Will he be your strength in weakness? Can you trust this Jesus? David could say in his aging years in Psalm 37, I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen 
the righteous forsaken, or their children begging bread. I am getting a lot closer to be able to say, yes, you can trust him the whole way. One of the hazards of social media, like Facebook, is that old friends can publicly post things about you before the whole world without ever asking your permission, and there is not much that you could do about it except join the laughter. And so this is, uh, <laughs> oh, <gee laughs> this is uh, a pic from one of my old young life friends from high school who posted it on Facebook this week. Uh, I'm not going to show you the other ones in my little tennis shorts in high school. But this one I never saw before, and I was trying to figure out when it was taken. And some would say, oh, you must be like 16 or 17 in this picture. It took me a while to figure it out. I'm not 16 or 17. I'm not 20 or 21. I am married. I am 27. I am a father uh, of our first daughter, Rebecca. And I am the church planter of Faith Christian Fellowship. <laughs> this picture was taken, as it says, in 1981. And the reason I figured this out is because I look closer and I'm wearing a wedding ring. And after taking a second look, uh, or a third look, I was looking at this girl sitting next to me. And I realized behind those humongous glasses is my beloved bride, Maria. It had to be within weeks after she delivered Rebecca, and she was without her contacts. She is 22 years old. She just finished college, and now she's a pastor's wife. That is ridiculous. The other thing that is ridiculous is that we were near broke. We were trying to renovate uh, this five-unit former slumlord drug center apartment house at 3549 Greenmount Avenue when the mortgage interest rates were 14.5%. I was a country boy. She was a suburban girl from McLean, Virginia. We didn't know jack about Baltimore City. And there was no leadership in our circles who did. This was a total free fall into something or into someone much bigger than us, and we were carried. Now here's a shot about a year later. You can see Maria's unadorned face. And the next shot is Pastor Stan and Terry uh, in front of the Greenmount Avenue house. And this was the InterVarsity inter uh, Urban Summer Project team that moved into the house to help us do community outreach and to see this crazy church form. Now this is a couple years later, the next slide. 1983, out on the front of the steps of this church. And if you look way up to the right, peeking out is Elder Bill on the far right. Arlette is in the back, uh, and I'm in the middle with a mustache, uh, trying to look like I am not in high school. And God is building this multi-ethnic bride when it was a very unpopular mission those days. 
We have now entered the 37th year of our history of Jesus carrying this church, of carrying me, of carrying my marriage and my family in this radical call. It is no longer a theory. Jesus has been sustaining this reality, and I know that he has been sustaining and strengthening so many of you as well. I'm often tempted to hold back, uh, to seek safer places to retreat in my own bubble. Following Jesus is hard faith, but he is the only one I know that at the end of the day will give me the peace that my soul seeks. You know, John 8, when many people started to drop out following Jesus because he was teaching hard things, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, do you want to leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus said, have I not chosen you, the twelve? The challenge for me and maybe for many of you is staying passionately engaged in the center of his radical calling of disciple making. And here in Matthew 4, we see Jesus embarking on this radical mission of disciple-making as he begins to call people to follow him. And you and I need to be reminded once again of this pure call. We need to hear once again Jesus' first words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. These are indeed radical words in this radical call of the gospel. I would like to briefly unpack some of these things, considering the repentance of the gospel, the target of the gospel, the summons of the gospel, and the proclamation of the gospel. From the time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, the very first word out of Jesus' lips in the inauguration of his mission was the word repent, a command, repent. You know, that word makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Uh, if In movies and TV shows, if they ever want to show a crazy preacher, they'll put him in the middle of a marketplace somewhere holding up a sign saying repent. And we just like, look at this person is totally whacked out. Well, Jesus came <laughs> And the very first word is repent. <laughs> repent. We, <laughs> and we say it makes us feel like something's wrong with us that we need to deal with. Well, <laughs> it tells us that uh, we are guilty of some wrongdoing that we need to correct. Well, <laughs> well, it makes us feel like Jesus is judging us. Well, we are more inclined to want to hear other statements that Jesus made, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I like that one. Or, uh, I have come to give you life and to give it more abundantly. I really like that one. And all of those statements are true in their particular context. But these statements were not the first and fundamental statement that Jesus made in his ministry launch. His first statement. His first words were repent. Writer Frederica Matthews Green said that we are immersed in advertising messages that tell us 
we are special, precious people with no faults who deserve to feel better than we do. Ads tell us your wife, your boss, or teenager, classmate don't understand you, but we do. Here, buy this and you'll feel better. Advertising invites us to be big babies. <laughs> Try telling a person who's been discipled by advertising that he's a sinner. How could he be a sinner? All he knows is that he's unhappy because he does not have his fair share of stuff, and he isn't appreciated enough by those around him. Try telling a person that he's estranged from the one holy God and needs to be reconciled. He's likely to respond, so who is this God who thinks he's better than us? <laughs> the problem comes when we never get around to talking about the hard part of the good news. The problem can even be that we start forgetting it ourselves and start believing that consolation is the main reason Jesus came. But what's wrong with us required much more than a hug. It requires a cross. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who, the resistor of Hitler, who was martyred for his faith in the extermination camp in Flossenburg, said, Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Jesus did not come to bring cheap grace. He comes with the grace of the cross, and he calls people to the first and foundational response to this offer of grace and the kingdom of God, and that call is to repent. This clarity of first things of faith are not just needed for those who come to Christ at the beginning, but for all believers, regardless of how long we have been Christians. For repentance is not something we do just once, but it is something we need to do daily and to do weekly as a posture of true faith. That is one of the reasons why on Sundays we have confession in our worship every week. So John the Baptist, his first words when he inaugurated his, in his uh, mission, he, his words were repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. When Jesus sent out his disciples uh, to the people, uh, they went out, it says in Mark 6, that people should repent. And the words that Peter gave to the crowd at Pentecost in Acts 2, whose hearts were cut when they heard about the crucified and resurrected Christ, and when they asked, what should we do? Peter said, repent. So repentance, uh, metanoia, the word from the Greek means to change. It's where we get metamorphosis. It means to change so that uh, it's a wholehearted change of views and values and goals. Repenting means to start to live a new life. And Jesus is not just talking about parts or changing parts and pieces of our life. It is about a whole life transformation. It's a complete overhaul he's asking for. Such repentance re revealed uh, in that is an attitude of humility and weakness and confession. And so, how do you repent? <laughs> how do you change? You know, it is a command that Jesus gives. But in that command, it is a calling of faith. It is a calling that Jesus says repent, and he tells his disciples to follow him. The way we repent is to acknowledge we don't really fully know how to repent. <laughs> 
we don't fully know how to change our lives or to change our dispositions. But what we do know is that Jesus knows how to get us there. And as we follow him, he will give us the strength and the ability to, and he will change those cold hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Scriptures tell us that God is the initiator of such grace. In Acts 11, Peter about the Gentiles in Joppa said, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. It's granted. Repentance becomes a gift we love because he first loved us. So the point is that we're often unable to clean up ourselves, to make ourselves right, or even to repent. Repentance starts with God, but it also starts with us yearning to be clean, yearning for change, yearning and asking for help. In the Narnia Chronicles, uh, in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a story in that about a young boy named Eustace who has been considered an insufferable brat, quarrelsome, arrogant, selfish, greedy. And uh, in this island that he was on, he finds himself into this dragon's cave uh, that had a vast treasure of gold and jewels, and he lies down in this dragon's cage, and he goes to sleep, and he wakes up, and he finds himself that he's turned into a dragon. <laughs> And uh, he's trying to shed his skin. Uh, and Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, comes and leads him to uh, a, a bath to, to help him to clean himself up. And, uh, and Eustace remembers that he can, as a snake, he can like start peeling off various layers, dropping it to the ground. And he starts to feel better, but... As he takes off one skin, he realizes another layer of, 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 of skin that he has to take off, and another layer. And it's hard, and it's rough, and it's scaly, he says, and he's frustrated, and he's in pain, and he's longing to get into this beautiful bath, and he asks himself, he asks Aslan, how many skins do I have to take off? And Aslan says, you will have to let me undress you. And to this, Eustace replies, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'll, I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than all the others had been. And there was I, a smooth and soft. Then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water and it smart like anything but only for a moment. And that it became perfectly delicious and as soon as I started swimming in splash, and I found that the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me with his paws in these new clothes I'm wearing. You see, Jesus is the one who gives us a new heart, and he puts a new spirit in us. He says, I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
Jesus is the one who dresses us in his righteousness. But what does he want in this repentance? He wants us to come with our helplessness. He wants us to come with our weakness. He wants us to come in our strongholds of sin so that he can do the deeper work of repentance in us. But we see here also the target of the gospel. You know, Jesus, it says, leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea. Now, you think, you know, Jesus, as a boy, grew up in Nazareth. He grew up as the son of a carpenter. And at the moment that he hears that John the Baptist was put in prison, that seemed to be a trigger for him to get up and move. And he moved into Capernaum by Galilee. It was a, as a, as a town or a little city on the side of Galilee overlooking the water. And Jesus here, he has left his home and he's moved into this area. Now Galilee, what was the nature of Galilee? Galilee was this district in Palestine. It was in the north area. Uh, could you bring the other slide? Uh, so these are the 12 tribes of, uh, of Israel, and you can see this is at the northern, that little body of blue water there by Naphtali and, and in between Manasseh. That is Galilee. Uh, this is the northern part of the tribes. Well, apparently in Israel, when the tribes uh, took over the land of Canaan, they weren't able to expel the Canaanites, particularly in the northern areas. And so many of those areas remained a mixed area with Gentiles. Well, as time progressed, uh, these areas became populated with the Assyrians, and, uh, and you see uh, various people groups uh, from Syria to the Phoenicians and to the Samaritans to the south. But this was a very fertile area. Uh, it's been said that it was so fertile uh, that uh, someone said that it was easier uh, to raise a legion of olives in Galilee than it was to bring up one child in Judea. <laughs> but apparently it was just such a fertile area that people just came to it because they, even if you didn't know how to farm or whatever, you could just grow crops very easily in this region. So it became a very dense populated area. There were 204 uh, towns or cities in this area that were no less than 15,000 apiece. And so what you have is a very blended uh, area, lots of Gentiles. And Jesus intentionally chose to move in and take up residence in Capernaum, right in the middle of all of this cosmopolitan region. And I think that was very strategic. You know, where you live is very strategic. You know, Acts tells us that Paul said, from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact place where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Here's the, here's the point that Paul is making, and I believe that Jesus is following. Where you live is very strategic in the kingdom. It is not just by some chance that you chose where you are. God, according to this passage, says, He's, you are located in your residence, you're located in your work, you're located in your community believer because God's placed you there to be a light, 
to be a means of grace to those who are walking in darkness. That's what the scriptures have reminded us. Uh, by the way, I believe that God placed this church in this intersection, in this city, uh, to be a place that would reveal his light in Baltimore. Uh, there are many churches that are, but this is probably one of the most diverse intersections of the city. Uh, we have in this intersection both large African-American populations and Anglo populations, both very, very rich multi-million dollar homes, and we have burned out shells. Uh, we are in the center of three major universities of Johns Hopkins, Loyola University, and Morgan State University. It is a remarkable uh, area in the city to be in. And I believe that God's placed us here to be stewards of the light and the grace that he's given us, that we might be a place that would draw many people to him. The question is, are we aware of that, and are we being faithful to where we're living and our neighbors? Are we being faithful to Penn Lucy? Are we being faithful to Guilford? Are we being faithful to Charles Village and to Govins and uh, the areas around our center of worship? But let's look at the summons of the gospel. And he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. This language that Jesus used is not a language of calling for volunteers. <laughs> There's no calling for like, well, why don't you go home and think about this? This is an imperative. It is a command. Follow me. Come. Follow me. And so Jesus, as the king who has come, is demanding complete allegiance to him. Obeying Jesus, the call that he is calling him to is to relinquish commitment to all of the things to the family business, to their assets, to their livelihoods. Uh, and so Jesus is giving them this radical call. Now, you must recognize this, is that Jesus uh, didn't do this just the first time. These, in this passage, it looks like it maybe is the first time in the encounter, but we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus actually had time with these disciples uh, over maybe a year beforehand. So they had seen Jesus operate. They saw, they heard his teachings. They saw miracles. And so they had understood the nature of who Jesus was. And so at this point, when Jesus calls them to follow him, they know who they're following. And they leave everything. They leave their industry. They leave their father. And they go and follow him. It's a, a remarkable change of the way disciples usually followed rabbis, the teachers of the day. Normally, a person who wanted to follow a famous rabbi would go to the rabbi and appeal, can I follow you? Can I be your disciple? I would like to be mentored and learn under you. That is the normal way it worked. But in this context, Jesus changes that. He chooses the people that he wants to be in that kind of relationship. And he says, follow me. Not every disciple of Jesus is called to leave behind his or her profession. Uh, Lydia, the purple dealer, used uh, her business as mission. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers along with Paul, who was an apostle who supported himself and others in his business. 
And one person, one commentator said, whatever our profession, whether preacher or plumber, teacher or technician, hotel maid or hospital orderly, discipleship means that we place a priority of our lives, joining with Jesus and reaching our daily world with the good news of the life of the kingdom of heaven. This, uh, this theologian said, I cannot reach, no pastor can enter into the complex world of corporate finance as effectively as a committed and knowledgeable Christian business person. We each have a privileged place of ministry that is unique to following Jesus in our own daily lives. And so Jesus didn't call everybody to do this same kind of venture. Jesus has many, many disciples, and they're integrated in society, in the world, in the marketplace, in academia, in the, in the medical world, and Jesus is using those. You know, Jesus compelled people to follow him not by force or by sword or by an army or by the backing of religious establishment. It was his intrinsic power and his personality, the wisdom of his words, matched with the manifestation of his miracles, combined with the compassion of his heart and the declarations of his divinity that compelled people to leave everything to follow him. Jesus never skirted or shielded uh, away from, or shied away from affirming who he was. And so when Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king or you are a king then? And Jesus said, you are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, it is for this reason I was born and for this reason, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And so when people heard Jesus speak, they knew that he was different, that he spoke with one with authority, because when he spoke, things happened. Jesus is still calling us to follow him. But finally, we see in the proclamation of the gospel that he went throughout uh, Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Uh, what we see is that Jesus, and this is uh, from William Barclay, says, Jesus came preaching that he might defeat all ignorance. He came teaching that he might defeat all misunderstandings. He came healing that he might defeat all pain. And he said, we too must proclaim our certainties, be ready to explain our faith, we too must turn the idea into action and into deeds. I think that's the whole gospel. You see, Jesus just doesn't come just with words. He comes with words, but these are words embodied with power. Things are changing. Lives are changing. People are being healed. The dead are being raised. And so Jesus' words come with power. The gospel is good news, but it's good news that's embodied with a resurrection power. It's a whole life transforming message that Jesus brings. When Dr. Martin Luther King was in the Birmingham jail uh, for his civil rights demonstration in 1963, he wrote this letter to these white, uh, eight white clergymen who found King to be or claimed King to be an extremist and wanted King to go home and to stop his protest and to let the movement of justice come to its in his own time. And so Dr. King wrote this famous letter, earnestly seeking to address these professed Christian ministers uh, for them to see the meaning of discipleship that was at the heart of the African-American struggle for freedom, justice, and equality. He said, I am in Birmingham 
because just injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so I'm compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. He says, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely of, for the hateful words and the actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. There's a lot there. But the point here is that the message of good news is a message where powerful words are combined with powerful deeds that Jesus has come Jesus has died, Jesus has risen again, and Jesus now reigns. Jesus does not separate words of truth from words of grace. And Jesus is still calling you and I today to repent and to follow him. What is Jesus saying to you today? Where do you need to repent? You know, some of us, it might be that uh, we're struggling with the surprise of suffering. That we are in the midst of great turmoil and loss, and we're experiencing the miseries of life, and we are having a very difficult time understanding what God is doing. Maybe our need is to ask God to expand our understanding of who he is. You know, I think of Job, who lost his family and he lost his wealth. And somehow Job could say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He couldn't understand what God was doing. He really struggled. But what he did, he took his struggle to God. And maybe your repentance is, you just need to take your struggle to God. Or maybe... Your struggle is a secret stronghold in your life that you're just not ready to bring light into it. Maybe there's stuff going on in your life that you know is displeasing God and it's really hurting your, your own personal peace and your testimony, and you need help. Maybe your movement of repentance is to bring a friend in and to confess and to seek the movement of healing. Or maybe... Your repentance is that you're just having a hard time resting. That you are a person in so much control of all things in your life that you don't know how to release and how to rest in the grace of God. You don't know how to do Sabbath. <laughs> and I'm confessing that. <laughs> I struggle with that. You know, I, when I try to put a sermon together, you know... <clears throat> I don't know, maybe because of our tradition, you know, you write everything out, every word out, and it never feels right. It never feels complete. And uh, there's, a, there's a sign in our bathroom next door, and it's the first time I saw this. Uh, it says, keep the door open. And there's a sign 
right in the bathroom. Keep the door open. The reason that Randy Race, our former operations director, put that in there is because there's no heat in the bathroom and he wants to make sure the pipes don't freeze in the wintertime. So keep the door open. And so when I went in there today, I saw that sign for the first time. It was like, Craig, stop trying to control everything. Try to stop trying to, you know, keep everything tight. Let the Holy Spirit have room to work. Keep the door open. <laughs> That's where I need to repent. And there's a lot of other areas I need to repent. Today, why don't you, like, find a friend and just say, hey, would you pray for me? This is where I feel like I need help to grow in grace. This is where I need to change and to repent. We also have prayer intercessors that are we have people that would love to just pray with you on any of those things that you would like to give over to the Lord. What's wonderful about Jesus' call is that it comes with love. That when he calls his disciples to follow him, Jesus knew that he was ready to die for them. And Jesus has come to die for you too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you give us these, uh, these words uh, that you open up a radical uh, mission with the radical word of repentance, uh, to repent. But I help us to live in that repentance because in that repentance we find wholeness and health and joy and peace. Lord, help us to be a community that knows how to repent in the context of grace and that you would give us brothers and sisters that would walk with us through this. Lord, we just love you. We thank you for being with us today. Bless your people, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The song has, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. You know, when you first maybe sing that song, it's, uh, you don't feel the sweetness a lot of times. But the next verse, it talks about you prove him o'er and o'er, that in the midst of proving Christ and giving your heart to him, that it will become sweet. Let's sing.